Hello and welcome to another edition, another version, another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I am here. My name is Sean Merwin, and I am with Teos Alpha Stream Abadia, who is going to get us through this episode one way or another. I was counting on you. I had a long weekend, Sean. Uh, there's a lot yeah. going on. Yes, this 12-day weekend that we had, and not in the good way, yeah. uh, is is taking a toll. But I have a fan blowing up my skirt, uh, so so that's helping keeping me a little cool. That's a and, metaphor. And hopefully, uh, no, it's folks it's who don't know in the gaming industry, fan blowing up my skirt means uh, several things, and you should look yeah. them up. In this case, there's a no, fan on the up. floor. <laughs> yeah, do not, do not look that up on on anything. Uh, even Digex like old blue yeah. air up a skirt in uh, right. Don't even go to the Encyclopedia Britannica and look. That up. That's that's how much you should not. Is look that, that not up. the internet? I thought it was. I've been doing it wrong. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so we have news. We have D and D and gaming news coming out our proverbial ears and in some cases maybe literally coming out of our ears but we're going to start with the good news uh the good news is that the D movie that we've been waiting for for so long has finished filming Woo. uh yep john francis daly uh the director or one of the directors is he, is he the co-director I was just the director, but I don't know. Just the director. Okay. He tweeted uh, that they wrapped filming on August 19th. Um, they filmed in the UK and Ireland. And maybe that's why we didn't get a lot of spoilers. Uh, I mean, they com- seem to have good security because there were pictures like taken from afar. The uh, Forgotten Realms wiki of all sites was very good about sort of sharing anything they could get. And so you'd get, you know, an actress with her face covered on a scooter moving from one set to another but you know really it was amazing how little came out yeah uh we did we do know that it's taking taking place in forgotten realms we've been listing out the actors uh who have been uh, slated for the movie as they as they have been announced and of course Hugh Grant uh playing the villain mm-hmm. and we think maybe Lord Never Ember is is his character. We're not sure because we've seen I have uh, not heard flags, that. flags m- matching. Yeah, I heard it. This was a while ago that I heard that that might be the case, or someone was hoping that was the case. Mm-hmm. And uh, and but we have seen flags that match the Neverwinter uh, yeah. decor that were seen on set. So it's it's a possibility. Uh, we shared uh, previously that the release date has been pushed back to the 3rd of March of 2023. So hopefully that release date will will hold. And uh, Teos made a note that I don't think we mentioned this previously, but an article said that Chris Pine earned over $10 million for his role in this movie, which was a quarter of the budget for, for the whole production. Now we know the mad loot was made by Chris Pine. He hopefully plays a rogue because that'd be perfect. Right. And, and for $10 million, I hope he also did catering and, and such, <laughs> but I heard that's how it hey, works in Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. So you, you know, pay good that for extra. Him. You got to like vacuum the carpet after everybody's yeah. done filming. Yep. So good for him and uh, good for the movie. Uh, any any other thoughts on that? No, I'm excited about this. We have to wait till March, but you know, this is awesome. Looking yep. forward to it. We, we are. We will be covering any news that comes out about the movie. Yeah. So everybody has uh, to get vaccinated. If you're listening, somehow not vaccinated, get vaccinated because I need to get to a movie. I'd like to see this in a movie theater. That would be really cool. With a bunch of other 
yeah D and D fans yeah. yes who are vaccinated so uh yeah. you know i think my my the only way i could do that right now is to buy every single ticket and i don't want to do that i can't do that so yeah yeah uh roll 20 is hiring a community manager uh do you want to cover that one yeah, this is a really cool posting. Like at first I thought, oh, cool, because it's a community manager job. You know, that's always neat. Um, uh, Roll20 has 8 million players. They've been growing the team. They have a lot of people doing a lot of different things. I've had an opportunity to talk to them as and several of folks that I know have recently uh, talked to them as they are expanding um, sort of the, their list of people they work with to spread the, the news of what Roll20 does. Uh, and they just seem like really nice people and great people to work with. So already I was like, yay. And then I looked at the details and Sean, you and I have covered a lot of different sort of job opportunities over the years. Mm-hmm. To me, this was the number one, like best written job I've seen. Like it, it, first of all, right at the top says what the salary range, which a lot of times in RPGs, they won't tell you. And it's right. like, really, you know, I just know this is gonna be bad. And this is 55 to 85 K, which is a great salary. Uh, for a community manager position. It's remote work. You get vacation, 401k, all that sort of stuff. Um, And the job is written up so that it talks about, you know, within, uh, I forget what the breakdown is, but a few weeks, you'll know this. Uh, Within a month, you you know, two months, you'll know this. Within three months, you'll be doing the following. Like it really, it helps you understand what your job will be like and what kind of things you're going to be mastering there. I just, whoever wrote this, Wow. A plus job. Really great job description. Very transparent, very clear, very encouraging. Looks cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's especially in the realm of marketing and community management, it's been sort of a tumultuous time. And yeah. a lot of times for jobs I've seen posted, it was basically a tweet. Yeah. And and that was it. You know, or, you know, email us your resume at, and that was it. And just because you you know, are on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and you, you name it doesn't mean that you have what it takes to become a community manager. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's great that they actually break it down that way yeah. um, and, and spell things out. Very cool. So Hasbro, it has announced that they will be hosting PulseCon 2021 on October 22nd and 23rd. This is an online fall convention. Uh, specifically covering Hasbro products. Uh, They had something that they called HasCon a few years ago that highlighted all of their brands, G.I. Joe and Transformers and My Little Pony and D&D and Magic. Uh, So this event will be live streamed on the Hasbro Pulse YouTube channel, featuring over 50 new product reveals and celebrity appearances and D&D and Magic, Magic the Gathering were both mentioned as brands that would be showcased. And with the news that we've been covering about how much of revenue and profit has been coming from Wizards of the Coast, this is not surprising at all to see yeah. that D&D and Magic might not only be mentioned, but might be highlighted uh, in this uh, in this PulseCon 2021. Yeah, I, you know, I'd normally not make much of it of this news, but because it is sort of like, you know, going to be a series of advertisements in a lot of ways, but it has that potential to reveal some interesting things. The Hascon had crossovers, right? That's where we've got like uh, My Little Pony D&D dice and some things like right. that. And so there could be some interesting things that come out of this. So it's worth keeping an eye on it. Sure. So for the fandom of any of those Hasbro brands, well, we'll, uh, we'll if you can't be there, we'll keep it up keep an eye on it for you 
Uh, Twitch streamers have been facing huge problems with hate raids, especially uh, POC streamers on Twitch will get uh, hit raided with bot accounts that are spamming hate messages, which of course makes it very difficult for anyone, but especially for POC and marginalized uh, streamers. It's been really traumatic. And and what's, what's amazing is that it's happening to some of the ones, some of the people who have like official relationships with Twitch. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you're, I forget what they call it, but, but, you know, they're basically highlighted streamer, for right. Twitch and they're, you know, Twitch, Twitch says they're going to do something, but so far there's no solid action, no solid tools. And, and they of course are taking that kind of line of like, well, you know, it's always hard to prevent these things, but lo and behold, in the meantime, you've got a number of community people who have created their own bots that allow you to shut down your channel, start it back up, clear the chat, all those kinds of things. Um, so it, it, you know, if you're into streaming, and you are uh, belonging to any of these groups that could be targeted, it, it is important to take a look at this. There's a Verge article that we've linked to here and also a YouTube tutorial on how to do this so that you can quickly stop w- what's taking place. Uh, but it, it's complicated. It's still a lot of work for streamers. And there's some streamers right now saying, you know, if I didn't have contractual obligations, I wouldn't do this. So big problem. We need some solutions that are official. Yeah. Uh, any voting is live uh, with, you know, maybe an issue on the first day. So uh, so if you're going to vote for the Ennies, you you can now do so. If you did vote on the first day, there was an issue. So uh, the Ennies have asked you to go back and vote again. Uh, you can safely try to vote again and it will tell you if your vote has already been recorded. So if you did vote and there was an issue, you can go in and re-vote and it it will accept your vote and if you your votes were recorded it will let you know that as well um the voting ends on august 27th so only a day or so after you hear this uh this episode drops at uh midnight pacific time uh winners of course will be announced at gen con on september 17th and one nice addition this year as teos notes in our show notes uh, there's a special page where you can view the covers and interior art of the products that you're voting on for just those things. Yeah, um, it's really nice. Um, I was impressed by it because you know, in the past, it's like you click on a link and the link might simply be a order page with n- nothing or maybe a cover image, but no interior. You're supposed to judge their interior art and you can't look inside. So n- now they have covers and interior art, but they don't have cartography or layout. And so hopefully they expand this. It should really be part of the submission process. And, and for folks who don't know, one of the weird things about the Ennies is you submit your product, the Ennies decides what you're going to be nominated for. So you may not think you're going in for a layout, but you end up being for layout. And now you don't have a page set up that showcases your layout. And you you basically hear about it when the rest of the world does. It only gives you a couple of weeks to prepare before voting. It, it, it just isn't enough time for, for folks to set things up well. And you only see a few companies that will say, I have redone my product page for this Ennies. So mm-hmm. it makes it tough. And I hope the Ennies in the future works with publishers that if you're for something like layout or cartography, there's got to be a picture of that, right? <laughs> How are people supposed to vote? And Yeah. Well, yeah, you know how democracy works. I, I have, yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we've, unfortunately, we've we've seen it in action. Yeah, and and 
Speaking of the voting process, there's another little wrinkle here, which is the organized play category. Um, Wait, I have to set this up. So Teos lobbied for years that the Ennies add a category for organized play because it really is, and not just Wizards of the Coast, like Adventures League organized play, but several brands have an organized play component to to their games. So Teos rightfully said, you know, these organized play uh, adventures are their own special thing. They shouldn't be competing against other stuff and they should be highlighted. And the Ennies finally said, you know, Teos, you're right. And they created an organized play category. So with that said, now I'm going to let Teos deliver the punchline. <laughs> <laughs> so the punchline is that this year, uh, three of the five nominees are not actually organized play. They're community content programs. So whatever has happened at Annie's, they apparently have forgotten what the definition of organized play is. And so now you have, uh, I forget what they're called. It's like Johnstown, Johntown. I don't know. Some, some, it's, it's a part of the Chaosium uh, community content program. So it's like saying DMs Guild. And, but the strange thing is you're not considering all DMs Guild applicants and products they're just considering organized play from the D side and then sort of community content programs from one or two other programs it's really strange i i don't know how it's the most bizarre category and, and what was really funny is i got an email from chaosium because uh, i subscribed to the email list and, and and they're saying you'll find us on the organized play program. And they're basically saying, it's really weird. We don't know why we're in this category, <laughs> but vote for us in this category. And, and I think for the Adventures League people, it's got to be really bizarre to be like, well, we're up against these products that aren't organized play. So please vote for us. It's just the weirdest thing. And I am sorry that I ever tried to get this thing going because it's not led to what I wanted it to, which was to highlight the very unique qualities of organized play. And and I don't think it's really done that in a year uh, specifically. So, yeah, so, yeah, Sean, you know, you've got to start an organized play uh, award uh, program. I think that's what it really is. I will get right on that. Thank you. Uh, in fact, I'm just going to shut my mic off and get started <laughs> right now. Or I will bring up the next bit of news, which is Paradigm Concepts launching Codex of the Mind, a complete psionics system for 5e. Um, you may have heard of Paradigm in the past, known for their great products in their own D&D world called Arcanus. Um, so this is a Kickstarter that's delving into Psionics. It can be used with any Arcanus 5e or any D&D world. Uh, you want to talk more about the the approach they're taking in this? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an old school approach, which to many of us is really kind of neat in that you get an actual Psionicist class. It's not some type of wizard or some type of rogue, you know, it is a, is a class and the class has different disciplines, which is something we've seen in all kinds of products, not just D&D products, but that idea of some scientists will master the body and others telekinesis and, and, and so on. And so there are powers specific to the path that you choose. There are the tradition you choose. Um, very cool. It's right up my alley. I, I like that kind of psionics. Um, and there's a preview PDF, so you can go to the Kickstarter project page for Codex of the Mind. You can get the PDF and see whether it's something that you like, which you probably will if you take a look. And it ends September 12th. All right. Uh, yeah, I looked at the page and I was specifically looking for who worked on it, mm. uh, if they named any designers and they didn't. 
which is not unusual. It was just, I was like, oh, did they, you know, did they find some, somebody who worked on the main game or, you know, yeah. Greg, I was looking for like Greg Marks or right, Sean right. Molly or, you know, yeah. names like that. Who often work with them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so, it just may be that it's it's the the two main folks there, you know, Henry Lopez and Pedro. Maybe yeah. that I don't know. Yeah, yeah. well, it, I mean, it's it was just something that I noticed when I looked. But as Teo said, uh, it's available on Kickstarter right now through September twelfth. It's already funded, so uh, it's going to happen, and uh, you can check it out. Um, we have speaking of Greg Marks, we have another Trap Master article for him from the Cobalt Press blog. This it, is in tra- fact two sean because one just dropped as a as we were recording oh really well there you go uh so this one is trap masters traps that aren't and how to beat them i haven't had a chance to read this yet so i'm gonna let teos take it from here yeah so the first article traps that aren't this might be my favorite of greg's articles because it's all about fake traps that you can use to sort of shove your characters in a special direction so it'll be like a statue that looks like it breathes fire, right? It's got like an open mouth and maybe scorch marks on it, but it does nothing. Mm-hmm. And um, a, uh, you know, a hallway that's riddled with holes and there can even be arrows in them, but they don't fire. And a very obvious pressure plate, right? And maybe it even goes up and down a bit because it's got something soft mm-hmm. underneath it. And I love those ideas of pseudo-arcane gloves. I love these ideas because they, they really point to what the fun in these kinds of situations is really the, the interactions and what your players do. So you can mm-hmm. have a non-trap that will just be interesting to interact with. And, and especially something like kobolds, you know, some devious creature or foe like that. Mm-hmm. Fake traps would be great, right? You know, one hallway has yeah. fake traps, one has real traps. So there's a lot of fun that you can have with this. I loved it. Yeah. Um, the second article that just came out is actually for players. Is Greg getting soft? I don't know. No, <laughs> don't say it isn't so. He is talking about how you can beat traps. And I think he wrote this for players. It's, I mean, yeah. Um, and what I did like about it, so it's things like, you know, if you have an arrow filled hallway, hallway, you can, you know, hold up a board that's going to you know catch the arrows and things like that. Um, and what I like is that it reminds us GMs that a lot of the fun for players is in foiling the traps. And so thinking about how the trap can be foiled is a way to create fun for your players. And I, so I, I, again, both of these are great reads, thought provoking reads for adventure designers and, uh, and DMs. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are interested in 13th Age, you can now get a free Kickstarter rule set. Uh, 13th Age, of course, is an excellent role-playing game that is sort of a mix between 3rd and 4th edition, uh, worked on by some of the people that actually worked on those D&D editions at Wizards uh, with a touch of indie RPG thrown in. Uh, you can download this PDF. It gives you a quick overview of the rules, enough to play, and then a free and very good intro adventure called Make Your Own Luck, which I think we will mention mm-hmm. uh, later. Anything else uh, on that? No, that's, uh, I mean, it. I, I think it's a great page. You know, sometimes you go to a, a website that's meant to introduce a game and you don't know where to get started with all the products. And this is a really nice page that provides everything you need to get started with uh, 13th Age. Uh, I've looked at both of these products, their free adventure and the quick start rules. They're excellent. Awesome. And we just heard what's going to be in Arcadia from MGDM, uh, MCDM, uh, issue seven. That will be available on August 25th. Uh, 
The seventh issue will bring us the following. The Pickling Guild uh, from Shrang Bizwas details the Guild of Pickling, Fermentation, and Food Preservation. Uh, so you get some NPCs and their secrets and uh, some special food-themed magic items. I love, I've worked with Shrang on a couple projects now. Uh, absolutely delightful, creative uh, individual. And awesome. so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you want to talk, talk about the second one? Yeah. Hannah Rose has written Wonders of the Wilds. These are nature-themed magic items for druids and rangers. Uh, there's magic such as the Bag of Saplings. That sounds good. Staff of Seasons. Uh, we also have a number of new spells for druids and rangers and other classes as well, uh, which is cool. I love my nature, my nature characters, so I'm a big fan of that. Uh, and the final one is Aethelfair by Sarah Thompson. This is an NPC ranger, which provides their stories, statistics, plot hooks, and a ready-to-play encounter with a bewitched unicorn. Sounds sweet. So, yeah, so if you uh, haven't already, you can get Arcadia either by buying it individually or by going to their patron Patreon at MCDM and, uh, and getting it that way. And that is all the news that we have for this week. So we will get on to our main topic, which will be part three of our look at running and designing introductory adventures for D&D. And so last time we talked about some of the options that DMs have for pre-made intro adventures, including the box sets uh, that we talked about, uh, the essentials kit and the beginner box. Also uh, some adventures, league adventures that can offer a good introduction to D&D. Now what we want to talk about is what should you focus on as a DM if you are going to create your very own ideal introductory adventure for new players? So what, Teos, what do we want in an ideal introductory adventure? So the first thing I want lots of is, well, and before we get to this first point that we have written down here, I, I want to say the first thing is that you, with, you, you are intentional about creating this for a new DM. And I think that's the first thing, the intentionality of it, right? That I feel like if you look at every fifth edition D&D hardback, not the box sets, but all the hardbacks, I don't know that any of them shows intentionality towards, hey, let's make sure that the brand new DM feels great, feels cared for, feels like this is easy, right? I mean, out of the abyss, right. how about you run a whole squad of NPCs oh, and also you're captured? Good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then the list goes on, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's part of the reason that is, and I'm not using it as an excuse, but it is a valid reason, is because D&D can be played in many different ways and tell many different kinds of stories. And I think that there is a, a belief, maybe, that if you do create something that is very easy to DM and that takes DM step by step through the game, that you are by definition having to make a very simplistic, um, trite, linear in a bad way adventure. Yeah, and, and I'm yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say I, I'm going to step out of D and D into the board game realm 
because a perfect example of this is Gloomhaven. Okay. Um, if you've the board game Gloomhaven, very, very complicated uh, for beginners. And so I bought it, but I also bought what I thought was an expansion for it called Jaws of the Lion. And then I started reading online that you should play Jaws of the Lion before you play the actual big Gloomhaven game hmm. because it actually teaches you how to play. And sure enough, it was that step by step, step by step. Here's how you set it up here. And so in a normal game of Gloomhaven, you get a deck of like 11, 12 cards to start with. And there's seven or eight different things going on all at once. And this took you through step by step by step. And the first session is just with four basic cards and it leaves out almost everything else, except here is the mechanics of playing these cards. Then the next session, it, it introduces picking up loot and having different kinds of monster tactics rather than just the basics. And then the next, you know, and it adds yeah, awesome. maybe one or two things at a time. And, and that's great for a board game. Mm-hmm. Right? For, a, for a role-playing game, you can do that, but it almost by definition lessens the experience for certain types of players. Yeah, maybe. So here's what I'm thinking. Right. I, so I, and I totally hear you, right? And and I yeah. and I understand that impetus and that sort of that logic that that takes place. I'm sure at, at Wizards of the Coast and for anybody who's being hired to write an adventure. Um, but at the same time, you know, I've been looking at for for a blog uh, series that I'm writing. I've been looking at old dungeon adventures. And the sort of adventures that add choice. And I'm, and I'm actually going to a bunch of fourth edition adventures in Dungeon Magazine. And there are a number of examples where great choices have nothing to do with the complexity of the adventure. And a great example is, I think it's called Pray for Smiley Bob. I forget the exact name of it. It's, I think, it's somewhere around Dungeon 210. It's by Chris Perkins. You may have heard of him. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> You know, what Chris does in this adventure, it's very simple. It's like go to a windmill because there is some crazy bear that's mauling the halflings in the village. And you're going to go to that windmill. There's, there's no hard thing. You'll end up at the windmill. And when you go there, you will find various clues about the nature of what is going on, which is that the goblins have basically trained this bear to maul halflings. And they've done it in typical Chris Perkins humor way by dressing up as halflings mm-hmm. and enticing it to maul them. <laughs> many, <laughs> many goblins died in achieving right. this, but the end result is great for the goblin chieftain who's currently away. Uh, and so you, you, as you learn these kinds of clues, you can, you know, traverse up this old windmill and deal with eventually with the, with the bear in the manner that you see fit, which will probably be to try to befriend it and turn it against the, the head goblins who will return to the windmill. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's the kind of thing that's very simple. Like, I mean, that's really all there is to the adventure. But right. the players are going to feel like it's much more and they're right. going to do things with it and it's going to be super interesting and super fun. And there's still plenty of parameter, right? It can go very left or right based mm-hmm. on exactly what the players do in each of these scenes but they're all really simple. Like no DM is going to struggle with this scenario. It's really easy to run. And yet okay. it's really interesting, right? Yeah. And, and it, but yes. And it also depends on how much 
that you're trying to teach ADM in the adventure? Are you to the point of here is your AD 20? When you roll it, you have a 5% chance of getting yeah. any number, right? Is that the, is that how deep you are going with the adventure to teach? Or are you just trying to assume that they know the basics? And so you are introducing more, um, more ways to run a fun game as opposed to running the game itself. I think that depends on the product. And that's one of the things, you know, I think it's what, what gave us the, the, the impetus, right. For right. For doing this series mm-hmm. is looking at some things that were recently written for what theoretically is a very new audience. And so mm-hmm. if you are writing for what should be really new players, like maybe they've never played D and D, but they're receiving this free thing then I think you need to do that because right. they need those rails, right? They need the handhold yeah. and it doesn't have to, I don't think it has to super take away from the experience. Like I'm thinking about um, during the fourth edition era, um, Chris Tulak took the, 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 one of the box sets, I think it was the red box adventure mm-hmm. um, that was released for, for fourth edition. And he, change some of the rooms and, and basically what you received as DM where we ran these at PAX and other places. Um, he just basically said like the first room, remove all the bad guys, but the room has a bunch of skill checks. So leave that in there. Mm-hmm. So the first thing the players are going to do is they're going to make skill checks to figure out how to manipulate the things in this room and, and gain access to the next area. So you're going to simply focus on the character sheet rule sec or skill section which will allow the players to have a more gentle, easy thing. They're just doing this one activity. And you as DM too can focus on just this one aspect of play. Then we get into the next room, we have our fight. We get into the third room, we have our big fight. But by phasing it out that way, it did really make it far easier to run for new players. And I don't think that experienced players were bored by it. I thought they had a great time too, right? So it worked. And, and that's, yeah, that's great. And that's, that's what I mean. Um, you know, if, if those skill checks are just, you know, jump over the chasm in the middle of the room, mm-hmm. that might not might be boring, capture yeah. the imagination uh, while you're doing this sort of teaching. Yeah. Uh, so but if if it's more complex than that and if even experienced players would get into it and right. and and enjoy it and be fulfilled both as a player and as a character uh then then we're we're on our way we're yeah we've yeah. lit the fire so, so, so that's great yeah and i think that's the thing right coming back to sort of where we started like you i think the the, the company the product manager the the producer of the product should look at what the goals are right that's maybe your first step and so if you're dm and you're just doing this for a home game you are all those things right Sure. And, yeah. and you then can think about your players and what your players need. So if you have an, if, you know, if you have a couple of very new players, um, having a, a gentle start can be really good so yeah. that you, you can ease them into it. Right. Yeah. And gentle doesn't mean boring. No, gentle means, uh, not hitting them with everything all at once. Yeah. That maybe, you know, being captured in a drow prison with 12 other NPCs may be a little hard. And it may be a little hard for right. you to run because you suddenly are having conversations with yourself many times. Yeah, yeah. We, we, for, from 12 different you know, role play, a Mykonid and a drow yeah. and a, you know, oof, right. good luck. Right. Yep. So 
now let's go back to that question. What do we want in an ideal introductory adventure? And so what we've, we've, what we've been talking about here is DM guidance, um, you know, teaching a new DM how to run major scenes or at least different types of those scenes. And you wanted to give some examples uh, yeah, for things that you know about. If, if folks want to look at these, right, um, the 13th Age Adventure that we mentioned, which is free, make your own luck and get off that um, the link in our show notes that we shared earlier, uh, they at each step for each scene, stop and talk to the DM. In fact, they, they don't even, it's not necessarily in sidebars as is often the case. It really just says, it talks to the DM, uh, which is also part of the 13th age style. So it's easy to do, but they'll just say to you, hey, here's how this might go. Here's some ways this scene can play out. Here's some things to keep in mind. And it does so without being too much text. You know, it doesn't overcomplicate the amount of reading. Um, and it, and it's really helpful. So I think it, it, you know, this is a good one to look at and make your own luck to, to see how this can be done. Well, um, Scott Fitzgerald gray wrote the hidden halls of Hazakor, um, specifically for beginning game masters. And just from the very beginning, when you look at the text of what Scott provides, you can see that it's speaking to the M to the DM and preparing them. It, and it, it covers sort of all the things you need to understand for how to launch this scenario and run it. Um, and, and maybe we'll have Scott on the show at some point to talk about this, because I think that could be fun. Um, another one is James and Tercasso wrote a free adventure you can find on Roll20 called The Master's Vault. And it does double duty of teaching you how to run an adventure and how to use Roll20 all at the same time surprisingly well i mean it really you know talks about not only what to do in this particular scene but how to use the roll 20 system the virtual tabletop to make that fun for the players it's it's also worth looking at because you know talk about having to do two things at once and doing it well yeah that's i wish i had known about that when i was trying to learn mm -hmm. roll 20 cool so dm guidance uh definitely important uh, if you're writing a an adventure for new dms uh, the second thing we want is make it easy to run uh, and really what that uh, comes down to is making it really easy to grasp the concept of the adventure not a lot of moving parts either in the background or the foreground so that can be run easily without a lot of preparation needed yeah, like, you know, a couple episodes ago, we talked about the adventure that comes included with Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. Mm -hmm. I really like that adventure. I also don't think it's great for a new DM, right? If what you wanted yeah. to do was entice a player into being a DM and they have to read many pages to figure out how the adventure works. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah you know, part of that is just knowing how the pieces fit together, you know, is it linear? Does it go from, you know, encounter one to two to three? And you sort of want that uh, in, in an introductory adventure. You don't want to force the DM to choose between different, you know, NPCs like that adventure does. Yeah. You know, who's, who's uh, doing the seance? Who, yeah, yeah. Who's doing the seance? Uh, who is seen? Because all of that 
matters later in the adventure. And it is so easy for even experienced DMs to not make those connections, to run this ghost appearing without realizing that then that means in area 27, uh, this is going to appear rather than that. And so it's, it really behooves you when you're creating these intro adventures and really any adventure uh, to at least make it clear what the flow of the adventure should look like and make it clear where any decision points will lead once they're made. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's really, I think the biggest part of it, if you if you can easily grasp what the adventure is about and it's exciting, then you want to DM that. And I think that's something that older adventures, which were very simple, were sort of good at doing for us because they were just, yeah, you could read a few paragraphs and be like, Ooh, this sounds fun. I want to run this. I get what it's about because there wasn't that much to it. Right. Right. (laughs) It's an ancient dungeon that uh, is trap filled and uh, has lots of undead. Ooh, that sounds fun. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you think of uh, the Temple of Elemental Evil, that is a very complicated dungeon because there are many points of egress. There are many ways that you can work with the denizens of that dungeon against other denizens of the dungeon to to get through it. But it that adventure begins in the village of Hamlet, where what do you do? You go to the moat house. Yeah. And, and even the first few sessions, you're just talking to the various villagers. And so right. it just, it just is, you know, it really is like, well, you, you're going to the first house. Here's what's at the first house. And, and then eventually yeah. you're going to go to some place that'll tell you to go somewhere else, but you don't right. have to overthink it. You really can, you can basically wing Temple of Alamo evil from start to finish and it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, a big, it's relatively complex adventure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it, it funnels you in the right direction yeah. from the start, which is very, very helpful. So easy to run. Uh, next, start at level one, specifically if you have new players, uh, because you want them to get a feel for the rules uh, before you start throwing in subclasses, before you start throwing in these extra abilities that layer on top of things that they may not know about. So, you know, spell slots, spell casting, spell memorization, uh, you know, all of those things are best handled right away or for certain classes where they start their spell casting at higher levels, you can get players uh, understanding the rules more easily before you hit them with the, that spell casting stuff. Yeah. And, and I'll say, you know, we have this later on in the list, but at the same time, when you start at level one, then you have to realize that they're squishy. It's the squishiest level, Um, you know, critical hits can take you down even to dead, dead. So, you know, thinking about, well, do I really want to overwhelm the players? Probably not. So focusing on fun rather than challenge lets them get their footing. And the truth is, especially if your players are new or just because they're level one, uh, everything feels dangerous and you don't need to overdo it. Yep. And one of the things that we've seen in recent adventures that is a great uh, suggestion is to get them quickly to level two, which evens out that uh, dangerous swinging nature of level one play. So you may only play for an hour. You may only do some role playing. 
or role playing and then a very, very quick battle. And then boom, you're level two, right. um, doubling their hit points, basically uh, giving them more survivability going yeah. forward. And it gives them that excitement that um, they now get to level up and, and do things with their character sheet. So it forces them to look again, who is my character? Uh, what, what path am I on? What's the trajectory? That, and that can be exciting for players too. Yep. Uh, next we have is fun start. And I'm going to add a word to that fun and active start. Uh, get right into the action. While it is a well-loved trope to start at the tavern mm and talk to people and sort of learn about things before you go off and do anything. It's much better to have a memorable active start to your adventure, the, especially for a new DM, because that lets them read what to do and then do it as opposed to having to role play the barkeep and the, the tavern workers and the tavern goers, and then the sheriff that runs in and says that the goblins are invading. Right. Uh, if you if you just start with the goblins invading, if you just start with a piece of box text, and then this is this is what's happening. Deal with this specific thing. It's much easier for a DM to get into the flow. Yeah, and and again, without being you know, you're not creating an overwhelming, super complex scene that will make it hard to run. It's easy to run, but it gets right into the action, and that way the players uh, feel that that the excitement of D and D right off the bat. Um, like it's interesting in the box set and the starter set that the adventure has that strong start in the goblin ambush, but there's actually this part before it that it's just sort of like this, you know, telling you what the background is and it really should just get straight to that goblin ambush. Cause that's the fun part that we actually think of as the beginning and, and really should be the beginning. Um, it could be the barest hint of a, a, you know, it's almost like you just don't need that exposition. And I think a lot of times as DMs or as authors, when we're writing something, we think there needs to be this big backstory to get you going. And no, there doesn't actually let's, let's roll twenties. Yeah. I'm going to give you an example of how I would redo something that I did hmm. uh, for, for, to, to capture this, which is uh, the season 10, uh, intro adventures that i wrote i can't even remember the name of the adventure how's that uh ice road trackers there we go it starts with the characters crossing over Mm -hmm. a pass in the spine of the world and there's an avalanche and while i was doing play testing uh you know this this animal comes up out of the ground through the snow and shows them the safe passage down under the earth to escape the avalanche and the play testers did exactly what I thought they would do. They just followed the animal. And then I started running it after it was published with newer players, especially. And they just sort of looked at each other because they weren't sure I was asking them to make what could have been a huge decision right away. What I would, what I would do if I rewrote it is start with a saving throw, Mm -hmm. teach them what a saving throw is. The ground is shaking beneath your feet make a dexterity saving throw. If you fail, you fall into the rift. You're safe, but you've fallen into the rift. Uh, If you make it, you hang on, but snow is beginning to pelt you. Presumably someone will have failed. So the the other players will know that it is safe. So they will just follow. 
yeah. uh, that get gets that saving throw mechanic uh, dealt with right right away. Maybe a, a skill check, maybe an acrobatics yeah. check or something in there. Uh, so if I ever rewrote this, that's what I would do. Just to highlight the point that you know active is better than having to overthink or or take yeah. in too much. Um, and you know, I do something like that with your adventure as well. In that, I think a. a the, the typical way that this kind of adventure would start would be with, tell me why you're going to Icewind Dale. Mm-hmm. And that's okay, because it does get into what your character is like. Um, and when I was thinking about running this online, I, that's what I was thinking I was going to do. And then I was like, well, you know, you've got to get him into this crevasse and into the action faster. And into, so I got to, you know, I got to get to the adventure. So uh, let's see, what can I do instead? So what I did was I painted a picture of this imminent demise as this avalanche is coming down. So I said, we're going to go around the table and you know, you're dead. You're, you're, these are your final moments on earth. How do you face your final moments? And so each of them gives me a little bit, right? Like one might pray or one might still try to, you know, block with a shield or something and their characters come out that way. And then I'll choose one of those that based on their action is plausible that they spot this little and exit right. point and the little creature motioning to them. And then they all follow, right? Because they know they're going to die. There's no two ways about it, but it's what you're talking about, right? Which is that you want whatever your, 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 your beginning is going to be, you want it to be evocative and accomplish those goals that you've set out for it. Right. Which is maybe it's a quick character intro and a skill check, or it's a saving throw and, you know, highlighting those skill mechanics, but then right into it. And it should feel exciting versus, so it's a four-day voyage to Icewind Dale. How did mm-hmm. you get here? Okay. Well, right. let me tell you about the caravan people, right? <laughs> right. Grim yeah, it's, it's true. Dwarf Duros is uh, the head pilot. Next one, is, yeah. and nobody cares. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. That's the quickest way to get people to tune out. So, fun start and active start. Um, we already talked about the next one, which is not overwhelming for players. Fun, but not overly challenging. Excellent. Uh, not too many options at once. So you don't want to give the players the necessity to make a huge choice or even a small choice with many options, because what does that entail? It generally entails having to give them a lot of information first so they know why they're making the choice that they're making. Yeah, right. Then have to make the choice. And, and sometimes, too, adventures will have these sort of various things that you could do that aren't actually what you, the DM, or even the adventure want them to do. True. They're for later or they're side things, but you want them. And, and uh, the, the starter set does this a little bit, where there are these sort of faction type quests when you arrive at the town that aren't really your main thing and, and kind of don't have much to do with anything. And you, you kind of want to do some other ones first. Um, and, and, but they're all there, all the options are there. And just depending on which way they walk, they may end up one way or the other way, but not necessarily in a good way. And so that's right. where turning off some of those options and turning them on later can be good. Right. Or, yeah. uh, Tomb of yeah. Annihilation has just the town of Portnian's hour with everything that's going on. And if it doled out various pieces at different times, it could create a better, now go to this part of the jungle, now do this thing, learn about this piece, and that would work better, right? Yeah. And and this is sort of a difference between great fiction and great gaming. Mm. Great fiction, you want to 
to highlight, you want to tease a little bit. You want people to have an aha moment. So you, you introduce something that maybe they remember, but doesn't really get into their conscious. And then when they see it later, their subconscious goes, Oh, I remember that the, the, uh, the minstrel with the red tabard, she said this, and now this is, that's important back here in gaming. That's not necessarily what you want to do. If you can do it great, but in, in the case of lost minds, the, the first part is supposed to be the goblin. Well, the goblin ambushes is, is the right. first encounter. And then the second part is supposed to be the goblin lair. But if you go to town, you're introduced to the red brand ruffians, yeah. which is essentially the third part at Tresendor Manor. So if you then introduce the, the ruffians, that's the threat that's right in the characters' faces. So they may choose to deal with that, which A, they're not high enough level to really right. deal with yet. And B, they're leaving the main plot driver, Silvar, yeah. at the goblin lair <laughs> for another however long. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's one of those things where Teos is mentioning that you're, you're giving them a trail that you don't want them to go down. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's an important part when you're writing, uh, whether it's for your home game or whatever, just think about those trails that exist and, and, and ask yourself, do I want this to be there now? And if I don't, you know, then then find a way to, to phase these things in, right? When the adventurers return from blah, so and so and so and so have returned to town, and now their quests are available. Or the Ice Spire quest board model, which is really a great example of something that works for DMs. You know, you've got this grumpy person hiding behind a door that will periodically dole out quests as they handle one, a new one comes in. That's a model that works, right? Mm-hmm. Uh- Next, not too many NPCs at once. And I would add to this, not many, not too much information uh, at once. So uh, NPCs create a lot of extra work for the DM. Uh, They, uh, Teos notes in our show notes very brilliantly, that they take the spotlight away from the players. Um, If the NPC is doing all the cool things, the players are not not up on stage doing the cool things at the same time, generally. Uh, and you never want DMs talking to themselves, playing one NPC, talking to another NPC, let alone uh, more so, than two, which is just, yeah. The- it, yeah. So, so, you know, these are, these are the things that you want to think about, not only when you're writing your own adventure, but especially if you're creating an adventure that other people are going to be using. And one uh, thing it is, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, when it comes to NPCs, what can work is having an NPC that is your voice to the party and your ability to nudge people one way or the other. Um, so if you have an NPC that, that has a reason to accompany the party, uh, for example, in Tomb of Annihilation, you get these various jungle guides who can help you around, right? They can be the source of quests. They can be the source of rumors and tales. Um, but you have to write them appropriately so that they are, are they they give you that, and you have to think about whether they take up your time running them or not. So one of the things I did in Cloud Giants Bargain that I think worked really well in that adventure is that Acquisitions Incorporated gives you this disembodied head, There's this kind of talking skull that comes along with you. It has no stats, can't help you in combat, so it's not going to take away from that and doesn't add or remove challenge. So that's good. Uh, and it's there grading you. 
So it reminds you of the presence of acquisitions incorporated, establishes that sort of story and ethos. But then it also has little things it can say periodically to remind them of the whole point of the quest or point them left or right or say, hey, are you sure you found all the clues? It can be your voice to whatever you need to say to them, right? Which is very helpful. And so it's worth to consider that kind of NPC that can be your aid. For sure. And that solves the second issue with information. Uh, that means that the information that you may have forgot that may be important um, can be given at the right moment. But even then, you don't want to have to ex- take a half hour to explain the nuances of your vastly built world to get the character, to get the players the information they yeah. need to play the game. Uh, only give them the information that they a ask for because then you are providing something you know is of interest to them or B to get them on the path they need to play the adventure that, that you've created. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you could always say, Oh, by the way, barbarian, since you're from these tribes, you know that this rune you're looking at is a warning. Um, Yeah. And, and just let it, let it be that, let it be the the character knowledge when it's exactly needed, not going back to when the adventure first starts. Yep. Uh, what else should we be doing? We should be providing iconic D&D experiences as much as possible in our introductory adventures. What do you mean by that, Taves? Yeah, so when you think of D&D, you think of uh, you trek through the forest, the dark forest. It's creepy and it feels larger than you are. Um If you think of things like uh, Lord of the Rings, right, where every trek feels dangerous, that's a very cool D&D fantasy feeling. Uh, Reaching the dungeon, right, a dusty tomb, uh, the the keep of some evil place, like those are iconic types of things to do and handle and and new players especially will really react to those kinds of situations because they suddenly get to do what they've read about or been in movies, right? That's the fun that we all have as new players. Um, Ending with some iconic foe in some way. It can be a young dragon or, you know, a really evil sorcerer, like that kind of thing can really work because it's it's what's expected. Feels like the D&D experience. When you're writing an intro, you want to hit those notes. If your intro is all wild stuff that doesn't usually represent D&D, then it's not super introing you. It's doing new stuff. Right. Unless you know specifically that your players are into this sort of alternate right. thing, and then you can totally go in that direction and let them let them uh, have that experience that they want. Uh, provide experiences that draw players out and showcase the creative fun of D and D. Want to elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean there are. I think some of the fun of D and D across all the editions has been when you get to look at a problem that's presented to you in the adventure and sort of argue about how to handle it or think of creative ways to resolve it. You know, okay, there's this pit. Do we want to jump it? Do we want to attach a rope? Do we want to use boards to cross it? You know, we could take apart this furniture. That sort of stuff is a big part of the game. And it makes you feel like you, your thoughts, your creativity, that all matters, right? Um, arguing with a reluctant merchant, you know, any of those kinds of things. If you can come up with ways that you sort of set it up so the players will succeed in some way, mm-hmm. 
through ingenuity, that's the best, right? That's really kind of fun play. And so trying to showcase that way, like, like we talked about with that Chris Perkins adventure, you know, that you're going to figure out something's going on with the goblins and you'll probably use that to be in your favor. That's what you want. Yep. And it's also important for, to show new players that the reason D and D is so fun is because you don't have to just look at your character sheet and only do what's on there. The, the, yeah, I, I'm just restating what Teo said, yeah, but yeah. It, it, it is important to, to let players know that their own creativity, uh, not just in storytelling, but in problem solving is a big part of the game. Yeah. And, and these are the kind of things that have at my tables over the years really been awesome for younger players. Um, where the rooms just have a few interesting points that are super evocative to younger players. So I can think of um, uh, a young girl that saw a flaming skeleton at the other side of like a ravine that was hurling flame at everybody. And she correctly identified, you know, that's a real problem. And she's like, I'm going to jump this ravine. And everybody goes, whoa, that's really hard to do. Like you would have to roll a 19 or a 20 to succeed. She's like, I don't care. It's what I need to do. And she rolls a 19. (laughs) Just like This is the coolest thing ever. And those kinds of situations happen only when you do things like put a thing on the end of a ravine and have a rickety bridge and, you know, have a chandelier that can be swung upon. Those kinds of things are there for those reasons, right? And that sort of leads into the next point, uh, which is good, good motivation for for the the characters to do what they do and for the players to sort of have fun. Like you said, that creature at the end of the ravine, yeah. that's 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 motivating that the, the players know that that's where they need to go and that's what they need to do. So, you know, there's there's motivation to take on the challenge originally but there's motivation for the players to do the cool things that D and D lets them do the classic players handbook cover with the, you know, gemstone eyes and the idol. Right. I mean, those are just big motivators. You put that in an adventure and folks want to mess with that. I mean, how can you just walk past those, you know, gem eyes, you've got to do something. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And sometimes that's identifying the player who is going to be the instigator. Yeah. And, and figuring out what or making instigators by figuring out what buttons to push yeah. or what buttons to leave in plain sight that they will have to have to run up and push. Yeah. I mean, just a room with a lever in it. Right. I mean, that's, that's going to be fun. I mean, just, yeah, you know, that their personalities will come out at most tables. Yep. If you just have, you know, a 10 by 10 room and in the middle is a lever. I yep. mean, pools of water, uh, <laughs> yeah. fountains, yeah. you know, anything that can be, messed with uh, and just great motivation even simple cause effect type things right like you know you you step on this colored stone and a shaft of light shines somewhere the yeah. players will immediately start interacting with this thing and it will be very engaged with figuring out whatever this is right right and hopefully it's somewhat fun but even if it isn't they're just gonna have fun pressing stones and seeing colors and trying to figure something out and and yeah. that kind of interaction is just so good that motivation is key yep um, so if you're going to have motivation to do things, you have to have fun rewards to continue to get the Pavlovian response of <laughs> I do the thing, I get a reward. 
Uh, so make those fun rewards. It could be in the form of magic items or treasure for the characters. It could be in the form of, you know, narrative treats for the players, uh, things that they are looking for you know, to yeah. hand, hand the storytelling reins to them for a minute. Let them tell the story if that's what they want or make cool things. Hey, your character for the next 24 hours is now glowing because they stepped on this lever or pulled the lever and then stepped into the light. Yeah. Uh, and you know, any of these things, whatever is going to trigger that, uh, you know, response in the brain of your players, yeah. keep, keep hitting that. Yeah. And, and I mean, rewards, magic items. I mean, there's, it's so cool when you get the glowing sword, the pouch with beans inside of it, uh, a mm-hmm. Bucknerd's ever full purse, any of these number of things, they're just classic things that you just, you, you know, you, you feel so cool when you get one of these items mm-hmm. that does something, um, especially if it feels special, right. And that, that's the best. And so sometimes, uh, especially as we get old and, and, you know, ho-hum about things, we can just be like, Oh, it's a necklace that gives you plus one to all saves. And that's fine. But you could also give it some interesting angles that really heighten that experience, mm-hmm. right? And make it fun for player old or new. Right. So fun rewards. Next is guidance for leveling up. Uh, so I, I, I see this in two ways. One is guidance for when to level up. So take the guesswork out of the DM's hands for when they should be leveling their characters up. Let them know, hey, at this point, the threats are going to get worse. So why don't you level up now? The other guidance for leveling up is this is how you level up. Uh, you know, how to handle the things that the characters might have to choose. You know, those sorts of things. Yeah, and maybe even the fiction of it, right? Which is that, okay, they hit level two. What's that mean in the game world? It can mean various things. And so you may want to provide for that in your adventure that when they return back home, um, you know, whoever it is that's giving their quest, maybe they provide training, mm-hmm. right. Or, or something like that. Um, that can be, you know, or they have some downtime that they spend as they yeah. kind of focus on what they've learned and uncover clues. And that can be a nice way to explain the leveling process, you know, give them a week off at least. Yeah. 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 And, and downtime is one of those things that can get complicated. Uh, so maybe at lower levels, give them a choice of two things. Oh, you, you're resting, you level up, you can a work on this or B work on this. What, what choice? Um, and that slowly gets into the player's minds, the, the sense that, oh, there's other things I can do other than go to the dungeon or go to the cave and fight the dragon. I can also make potions or I can also, uh, learn a new language or I can also do whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, appeal to diverse audiences in, in this. Uh, there are different meanings for that. I'm going to let Teos talk about a couple of them. Sure. So, you know, if, if, you're, if you're just doing this for your group, then you're thinking about what your different players want. And some may be brand new and some aren't. So you want to think about how you appeal to, to everybody there. And they may like different things. The more you know, the more you can shape that experience. But if you're making a product, if you're you know, creating the next 5e uh, hardback book, or you're creating a Stranger Things box set or a Magic the Gathering, you know, crossover adventure, uh, something related to the D&D movie, whatever it might be, 
then this creates its own issue because you have these branding aspects um, that you have to incorporate. I wanted to talk about a little bit about that because we saw these Magic the Gathering adventures and, and I like them, but they, they don't feel like intros uh, and they don't feel like intros either to a D&D player on what Magic the Gathering is all about and why it's awesome. And they don't feel like intros to D&D for the Magic the Gathering player, right? They don't, they don't help you run them if you're brand new to D&D. Um, and, and so I think that when it comes to branding specifically, you have the responsibility and the company does. I'm, I'm not placing any blame on any writer that does a project because projects come at you in a lot of very strange ways. And then you learn what they are later, as yeah. Sean and I both know. Um, but but the, the person, I'd say that the producer of this product uh, and the company overall, the team, um, will be better off and, and all of us will gain if they think of a branded project as having to do both things. One, all the things we talked about in an intro, right? That all has to be there. Mm -hmm. And then also to honor the brand and provide that experience because fans will want that even if they're new to both aspects. So somebody could be new to, to Magic the Gathering and new to D&D and still want both, all those things. Um, and that's a hard thing to do. It's not easy. But I think it's the responsibility of kind of that. That's the nature of the project. That's the thing you must deliver on to speak to that experience, right? Um, if I think the Stranger Things box set is maybe one of my, my favorite of these in that it does a good job of saying, hey, this entire adventure is written as if it were Mike Wheeler's adventure. Right. That's cool. And it's well done. And it looks like sort of handwriting and handwritten notes and stuff. So it, it provides that to me. Um, it could do some other things, you know, slightly differently, but overall it, it approaches that well. Um, because you, it, it becomes really important to do that, right? If it's your gateway into this, we want that gateway to work. Not to, mm -hmm. you know, if the, the worst thing is a Magic the Gathering player says, you know, I've been wanting to try this D&D thing. You've got a Magic themed D&D adventure, great. And if they look at the adventure and say, I don't see a lot of Magic the Gathering. Also, it's for 10th level characters. And also, I don't understand how to run it. Yeah, <laughs> that's, exactly. That's tough. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to add one off the top of my head, which is if you're creating a printed uh, intro adventure, use formatting to help DMs with the flow of the adventure. Uh, so at the beginning of, of an encounter, use box text so that the DM can easily get that information across or bullet points. Hi, James. Uh, <laughs> you know, some way to to let them know exactly what's there. And then maybe a very small bit, uh, a paragraph that describes what's the first thing that happens when the characters interact with the broom yeah and then you know maybe a bullet list of items or things that happen within the room but keep it as sparse and as easy yeah. to read and flow as possible and formatting in that sense is a huge uh tool that that can be used uh to do that well, it's a great point. The, the formula that I tend to look at, and, and again, the, the hard part is you got to make this all very brief, but ideally, mm -hmm. um, you know, before the box text, I'll get something that says something like in this room, uh, the players will find kobolds building a strange contraption. Uh, they will probably want to stop the kobolds before the contraption is used right. against them. 
Yep. So in one or two sentences, I know exactly what this is about. Then I get the box text that I can read to the players out loud. And then after that, it'll say something like, um, the goblins will do the following. Uh, here's what it takes for the, you know, the, the, and see the movie, see the contraption below. Um, when it's finished, they'll find the treasure. Really brief. And then I can have subsections that say the goblins or whatever they are, the, 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 tr- the contraption, the treasure, you know, whatever else there is, the pit, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, because that is really easy to see at a glance and it's all going to flow properly. The worst is if you read the box text, think that there are two things to worry about, and then you find several others. <laughs> right. Late, later, right. Later in, oh, in a full wall of text that's right. not divided up by headers or subheaders or anything. Yeah. That organization is really key to, to helping, especially a new DM. Yep. So we're just going to finish up by giving uh, what I consider the top three pitfalls for new DMs or writers writing for new DMs. Uh, one, don't try to do too much at first. Focus on one element and cover that element thoroughly. If you're going to you know, do a combat, do a simple combat without bringing in too much other stuff. Let mm-hmm. that combat be, let it go from beginning to end so everyone knows how it works. As much as we love bringing all three pillars, role-playing and exploration, all sorts of wacky things happening during combat, do that later. Start with something simple and straightforward. Maybe only one little cool thing that they can do. Uh, if they pull the lever while the enemy is on the square, something happens. But right. that's it. Yeah. Don't, don't get much yep. deeper than that. Because uh, for new players, even going over what dice are which can be, can be intimidating. Yeah. Uh, if you are going to give lots of choices, keep them very simple, very straightforward, without needing a lot of background information. Uh, without having to worry that they're going to make the wrong choice right from the start and and have it be a horrible experience. Mm-hmm. Keep keep the choices simple. Let them understand that they're not going to die just because they choose to go right instead of left. And that's a good point. Like you don't want to have um, a decision in your intro adventure that leads to being ostracized from the kingdom. That's not mm-hmm. going to feel fun, right? Like yeah, it's, it's too heavy. And so don't provide those types yep. of situations that are going to lead to something that really makes them feel like, oh, now we're in really yep. deep trouble. Yeah. And third, don't try to explain all the nuances of the game because it's a very complicated game that we play. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a very nuanced game. There's lots that, that interconnect. So you don't have to explain everything all at once, even if that means playing wrong for a bit. So you know, the, the, the one that comes up the most for me with new players is, you know, they run up and hit someone and then they try to run away and, you know, opportunity attacks. Sometimes that, especially with like fourth edition uh, or third edition, fourth edition, that would take a half hour of game time sometimes <laughs> to try to explain it and they still wouldn't get it. So don't worry about that right from the start. Don't worry about all of these strange interacting things. Uh, let it play and then say, well, I'm going to let you do that this time. We'll explain. I'll talk more about that at a later date and, and finish the combat. Sure. And then later get into these more nuanced bits of rules or story. Yep. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Those are, those are, those are my top three pitfalls. Those are good. 
Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, anything else on this topic before we head off into the wild blue yonder? I'm ready for the yonder, Sean. We are going to yonder like nobody's business. Uh, and while y'all are yondering, we want to thank you for listening. We uh, we do this every week because we love each and every one of you out there. Boy, howdy. Uh, we, lo- we love to talk about D&D. So, and specifically, patrons, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. For, for being patrons of the show. We, we really, really do appreciate it. Um, you can become a patron if you're not already by going to patreon.com slash M M P Teos. You are a master of this game of D and D that we love. And you have lots of things to say about the game, even not on the show. And where can people find all of those words of wisdom? Oh, well, this week you can catch me on the IDMs podcast. I was on there talking Ooh. about flowcharts and adventures. We had some good disagreements. And he also got in my head because he's a psychiatrist by training. Uh-oh. Um, that was good. Um, you will also find me dissecting some dungeon adventures and the choices in them this week at my blog of alphastream.org. And I am on Twitter at alphastream. All right. How about you? You Sean? can find you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. Uh, you can find the podcast Twitter at Mastering DND. Uh, or you can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com to leave your thoughts and opinions. So Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected mark production. So Teos, what are we gonna do now? We're gonna start with a skill check as we're walking through this forest trail. And you're going to find tracks. And based on how well you do, it's going to lead us to one of two choices. And then a short combat that'll be easy to handle. I just rolled a one on my acrobatics check. (laughs) Uh, I, I think I died. Oops.